Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Freedom of Species, or a show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves of 3CR Community Radio. Before you heard us, with uh, heard Sally with Out of the Pan, so check that out for all things pansexual every Sunday. Uh, today on the show, we're joined by uh, Lottie, who is going to talk about... Um, yeah, sort of academic work and, and using animals, etc. We're also going to play a talk by Andrew Knight, who looks into the science behind animal experimentation and, um, yeah, his work on that. So we'll play that in the second part. In the first part, we're going to talk to um, Lottie about, um, yeah, um, language. I'll, I'll leave it to Lottie to explain um, what discipline, etc. So you want to talk a bit about what uh, your area of study is. Yeah. So thanks for having me on, Nick. Uh, yeah, so I'm Lottie and I study language acquisition and psycholinguistics. So that's kind of like how babies learn language uh, and then how language works in the brain. Uh, and yeah, I wanted to talk today about um, animal testing in um, in the human science, well, in uh, areas that are related to the human sciences. So like, um, obviously there are, you know, problems with animal experimentation in general in biomedical sciences, but because I'm not in that field, I can't really talk about, you know, like the... Uh, validity and like the alternatives that are out there but like um, I think that's going to be more covered in the um, second part of the episode but uh, because I am in the cognitive sciences I can speak a bit more you know confidently about uh, what I think about animal testing in this field. Mm -hmm. Yeah and and when you were um, doing that uh, like undergraduate study for example were you thinking about animals then and, and these issues or is this something you've kind of realized down the track um, yeah as you've gone further through the the course and, and research in this area yeah I think it's a it's a little bit more recent because um, yeah in my undergrad it was more um, I hadn't started so much studying about language in the brain it was more about like the structure of language things like that and then um, more recently uh, as it's gone more into cognitive science, um, I've come across more studies that have looked at um, kind of, yeah, things like communication in animals and um, vocalizations by animals, things like that, that, um, are, yeah, related to like language processing and things like that. They're kind of used to, studies like that are kind of used to extrapolate um, how different humans and animals are in terms of our cognitive processes and things like that. Uh, and I think the thing that um, that kind of sparked my, you know, the idea of having this kind of conversation was recently I went to a virtual conference about how lang- like language learning and language processing 
uh, and one of the invited speakers was um, gave this talk on seal communication and vocalizations um, and you know it was a virtual conference so I didn't like fully get to gauge like what other people thought of it but just the fact that he was an invited speaker um, you know kind of indicates that that was a pretty like prestigious topic and I, just in general I get the sense that um, topics uh, like you know we're all language researchers so that's kind of like normal but as soon as like you've got someone talking about like oh this is how seals communicate people will be like whoa that's mm. so interesting uh, and you know as an animal advocate I don't uh, I can't find it as interesting because I just kind of can't help think about the fact that these animals need to be in captivity in order to test them and that really I just don't think it's, you know, justified for this little bit of knowledge that we get about about animals. Yeah, and what are the, the benefits that those doing that kind of research sort of argue that that creates, like studying other animals when it comes to language um, and I guess beyond giving exciting conference presentations uh, that people are excited about. But, uh, yeah, what are the justifications and, yeah, why, yeah, what's your reason for why you think that we should be avoiding this? Yeah, so honestly, like, uh, I don't know if it is out there, but from, from what I've kind of seen, there aren't, there haven't needed to be that many, like, just people people haven't really needed to justify this kind of uh, experimentation, maybe as much as they do in the more biomedical sciences because they're not, um, you know, they're not giving them drugs. So maybe the testing isn't as um, invasive as biomedical sciences are. So I haven't really even seen these researchers, like, being put in the position to really justify their work uh, regarding, you know, like, the ethics of it. Um yeah, so it's not really a conversation that I think has had enough. And really, yeah, the reason I just don't think it's justified is it is just um, for the pursuit of knowledge um, as opposed to biomedical experimentation, which, you know, um, putting it, the issue aside as to whether it's, um, you, you know, whether it works or not, it is uh, with the goal of, you know, saving human lives. Um and so the stakes are a bit higher, but in the in the fields of cognitive science, it really is just to understand um, how the brain works. Uh, and as a researcher, of course, I think it's really important and interesting to to do things just for the pursuit of knowledge. Um, but it just means that you know I think it's harder to justify um, the use of animals who aren't consenting and who need to be kept in captivity and you know. Um, tested under what are probably stressful circumstances just for us to understand a little bit more about how the brain works and how humans are different from animals in those ways. Mm, yeah, and I'm, I'm sure conversations are going on about the ethics of like using animals in those industries, but I feel like within academia in general, the the assumption is always that it's okay to use animals and then sort of within that there's a discussion of how many animals should you use and yeah how are they treated and all these kind of welfare considerations and yeah while I certainly you know would prefer animals to be treated better rather than worse it also misses that that never sort of seems to be coming to ethics of well what is our justification for using these animals in the first place um do you want to talk about yeah i guess more generally some of those problems with animal use more generally whether specific to your discipline or or more generally um yeah yeah so um i guess i don't know so much about like the treatment of uh of these animals um but i suppose 
I'm kind of making the assumption that um, they're not treated as well as I think that they should be just by, you know, and I'm sure you agree, just because we're starting from the assumption that animal use is pretty much not good, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, coming from a, an animal liberation perspective as opposed to an animal welfare perspective, uh, keeping animals in captivity in the first place uh, is bad regardless of whether you're keeping their stress levels low or whether you're keeping them in a good environment that's, yeah, um, just the fact that you're still not allowing them to live their lives as they normally would be, um, to me is problematic. Uh, and it's not research that is then um, intending to help them at all. It's really just for us to understand um, humans and animals better just from an intellectual from an intellectual point of view and I yeah don't really uh see the justification in that so with um uh, with my own area uh of of research uh I can go into how you know what I've kind of observed there um so I study um so for my master's thesis I did this systematic literature review on how babies uh tell different languages apart so how they learn how to discriminate between different languages so I might just go in into that area so it's the the context is there for then talking about how uh you know this is same area has been studied in animals um so yeah there's research finding that um really young babies they prefer <coughs> listening <laughs> we we are still uh, recording from home. We're doing our first uh, in-person interview uh, now that we can have people over to our houses, but we're still not in the studio. So you may hear dogs, which I think uh, kind of fits with freedom of species anyway. Yeah. And <laughs> hear we have some, some non-human a- voices. Yeah, exactly. Some <laughs> animals trying to communicate with us. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, basically in my area of research, um, you know, studies have found that uh, really young babies, they prefer listening to natural human speech compared to like human speech played backwards or synthesized speech. And this tells us about how like early on babies understand the importance of paying attention to speech and that like facilitates their later language learning. Uh, And then they also learn really early how to tell the difference between a native language and a foreign language. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like they have the capacity early on to recognize what languages their parents speak and you know, to recognise that this is important for pay, paying attention to their native language so that they can, uh, for like later language learning. Um, and so when I did this literature review, I was just focusing on studies on human babies, but um, I also came across studies that tested animals' abilities to discriminate between different human languages, um, which is just, you know, a little bit random because... Mm-hmm. If animals are out in the wild, they're not really needing to... They're not in the position where it's useful for them to be able to tell the difference between different languages. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's, this, there's been these studies uh, on this. And so one that I found um, was testing babies and also uh, cotton-top tamarind monkeys. And it was published in the journal Science. So, um, yeah, if people are in academia, um, they, you know... You would know that so different academic journals have different impact factors, which is like a metric for figuring out or, you know, for 
kind of you know saying how how much impact a journal has and science is one of the biggest ones uh studying language sciences language acquisition we don't really you, you normally wouldn't have like much of a hope of of publishing in a uh, in a journal that has such a high impact factor but then this study just because it was testing monkeys it, it got into science um and so it you know that just kind of shows that it's just seen as like a more um prestigious kind of topic um which i think is it's kind of interesting because like there's this weird contradiction where in general you know in society speciesism is pretty widely accepted and it's accepted that humans are you know superior but then there's this kind of like weird um uh i don't know i think like view in sciences that like human sciences are a little bit like soft science and not as interesting and then once you bring animal science into it it's like it's more like real science Mm -hmm. um and yeah i definitely i've seen that in i've noticed that in language science anyway Mm. i don't know if you've had like similar experiences with Mm. working in sociology or yeah, I think the the why the, just a hypothesis in terms of obviously to be published in science, this would have to be <laughs> checked a bit more vigorously. But uh, perhaps maybe because of, almost because of species in in that uh, uh, because animals are kind of viewed as object as it's kind of seen as sort of more genuine science because we're just kind of testing these things in like in a more objective way because we're using supposed objects, whereas when it's come human, it's seen as more subjective and it's harder co- to control things like that. So I think almost like even though it's maybe draws on sort of a fascination with other animals i think it's also partly because of that species of them why um yeah why i mean that that's just my theory on that um but also like i think that's a really good point about that this is just for the sake of sort of building academic research and i i personally find that quite interesting the fact that non-humans can differentiate between different languages and stuff like that but i also don't think me knowing that just having a bit extra knowledge is worth submitting animals to a lack of freedom and um and uh yeah those kind of negative issues which you've touched on um as well and yeah i, I guess also yeah another point you're keen to get to is talking about um, yeah, sort of learning more about animals to see, oh, they're just like us and therefore um, they are sort of justified in having some kind of rights. But do you want to talk about why that's maybe a bit uh, problematic from a more animal liberation perspective? Yeah, yeah. So sometimes like something, some, something that you hear, um, you know, like me being a linguist, um, sometimes people will say like, oh, well, animals have uh, languages as well, don't they? Uh, and it's kind of like funny being someone who's like, uh, I guess like respects animals and loves animals, but a bit of a pedant as well. It's, uh, you know, my perspective is that the way that linguists define language, no other animal species does have language because, you know, uh, they do have like communication systems and make vocalizations. But what, you know, in linguistics, we say languages, like the unique aspects of it. Uh, is the fact that, you know, we can talk about things in the past, we can talk about things just hypothetically um, and that are abstract. And as far as we know, there's no other species that has a kind of like language system that can achieve those things. Mm. Um, so, you know, that is that is what it is. I don't think also that we need to pretend that animals are the same as humans in order to justify their liberation and to justify their intelligence. Because, uh, you know, in humans we do we measure intelligence in a 
particular way based on like our cognitive the cognitive processes that we can do um and like well yeah regardless of whether other animal species are intelligent i don't think should be a uh, prerequisites for whether we treat them well or whether we uh, are allowed to should be allowed to keep them in captivity and um, eat them and use them just in any way you know mm-hmm. so I think it kind of um, having this uh, kind of goal of trying to show through research that animals are just the same as humans is kind of it still puts uh, humans at the top of this hierarchy where everything that humans can do is like the you know the peak of intelligence and um our communication system and in our society is like the the yeah the um the best way to do things and any any ways that animals like come close to that uh there's this justification of uh oh look they're they're like us too but I just think that that premise is is flawed you know we can be different but still valuable uh, and it just means that then if there are species that, that don't come close to doing, you know, acting the way that humans do it, it kind of justifies then, uh, oh, well, we should be able to um, eat them or use them. And I don't, I don't care. Like it's not, um, they're not, they don't have the intelligence to know that they're being mistreated or to feel that they're being mistreated, you know? Mm, yeah, it's an interesting point. I guess they're separating communication from language so animals obviously or non-human animals obviously do communicate with each other but as you say that that is different to language um and actually just on, on a side note or a bit of a random note and actually on another show we did we, we end up talking about noam chomsky but i, <laughs> I have read uh, noam chomsky a book called on anarchism which basically puts together all these different work where he talks about anarchism and one was on linguistics specifically which is his field even though he also writes a lot about politics and stuff but yeah it was interesting because he basically used that point you made about communication um, to sort of justify anarchism, but in a very speciesist way. So it's basically like humans are very complex and we have language, etc., and therefore we shouldn't be treated like objects and we should be free and stuff like that. So it was like basically, you know, humans should be free and anarchism is good because of speciesism, basically, which was uh, like, yeah, again, I obviously agree with human freedom and stuff like that, but not at the expense of animals. So, yeah, that's a bit of a random one. Do you have any thoughts on that? Sort of, like, I guess he's using your same point, but taking almost in an opposite way, I guess. Yeah, yeah. no, I, well, I'd never heard that before, so that's just kind of interesting and funny to hear. I guess that um, it, I don't know if it's true to say that uh, humans are the only species that use hierarchies, but... Um, we, you know, humans definitely love hierarchy. So I, th- I think it's a little bit strange to say that um, human, you know, from his perspective, anarchy, which is kind of anti-hierarchy, where because we're somehow superior, we shouldn't use hierarchies. Where, whereas people, other other animal species are more suited to using hierarchies. I don't, I, I don't know. It doesn't yeah. really make that much sense yeah, to me. Yeah. And, and actually on uh, anarchism, I was actually talking to my mum last night who was talking about a Russian anarchist, um, Kropotkin, I think. Uh, and I believe his work is about, um, or you know, one thing they came up with is, was about basically people use uh, non-human animals to justify like social Darwinism, survival of the fittest, etc. But his work actually looked at that way that non-human anim- animals cooperate and, and you know, cooperate with each other and, and do things in a less hierarchical kind of way. So that was an interesting way of like taking a different kind of direction as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. for sure, mm. yeah. 
Um, and I guess to pretty much uh, wrap up this discussion, I think uh, there's quite an interesting topic that you had, which was about do we cite research in this area or do we not because of those ethical problems? And just like there's a website actually I've written for before, faunalytics.org, which looks at sort of research and tries to break it down in an accessible way for animal advocates for those who are, um, yeah, break down research on the area that's relevant to animal advocacy issues. And yeah, I believe they do sometimes cite information that was based on like, you know, using animals, experiments on animals with like a disclaimer, et cetera. Um, and yeah, that sort of, seemed like an okay way to go for me but I, yeah I, i'm still sort of undecided on it in terms of yeah so what, what are your thoughts about that of sort of um yeah trying to benefit from where we can but obviously not engage in that research ourselves or boycotting it or what do you think yeah i'm not really sure and i guess um i'm still pretty early in my career so i haven't had to make that uh decision so much uh, i think it's something that's important for me to keep thinking about um but yeah i suppose because um I guess with faunalytics, the the premise is that the idea is like pro animal liberation, uh, and so it's um, every everything they're doing is still with this goal of um, understanding animals better with with this like anti speciesist angle, uh, and so then I, I I think it's probably justified to use the knowledge that is already out there, um, even if it has unfortunately used animals in. Um, you know, ways that weren't really justified. Uh, I would think maybe just in research, like my own area of research, I would maybe be a bit more hesitant because I wouldn't necessarily have the space in a journal article to be able to say, uh, oh, this, you know, this study used animals and I, you know, that wasn't really justified. That's unethical. And, uh, and it might not get by it through reviewers oh, exactly. so you don't feel the same way. As exactly. Well. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and so maybe because I don't have that kind of space uh I I would just try and avoid it a little bit more because otherwise I think it is kind of normalizing uh it you know it gives the impression that oh well you're citing this and so uh you think that this was good research Mm. uh you you know if you don't have the space to really put yourself out there and put your own opinions out there more yeah and I think that is um yeah I guess the more you cite something the more I guess successful the publication is in academic terms the more it gets cited or whatever so yeah trying to avoid that sounds like a a good way to go in that case um yeah we'll get on to Andrew Knight's talk now would you be able to just uh scroll down the document we've got in front of us um just so I can introduce this um oh actually no we do have a song to play so we're going to play a song before we get into Andrew Knight's talk all about the science around animal exploitation so we're going to play a song which is about this this issue and yeah this is um evolution by the subhumans um it's a live version of this song and this is all about uh, animal testing specifically around cosmetics this is for the animals who continue to be slaughtered in their thousands and millions just to get your hair looking nice to go out for a night out and the god is little i rub it Keep it clean. The camera on the white folks is great. The camera on the side of the And the gun is a little white dog. Jump over your ass like a burning fog. Let's try to test you like a blind.
Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Freedom of Sea Species, bringing you animal advocacy on the airwaves of 3CR Community Radio. We've been speaking to Lottie about uh, animal research within academia, and we're going to go to a talk now by Andrew Knight. Um, and Andrew Knight is, um, yeah, he's someone, a really interesting, um, yeah, I think a really relevant person to uh, discuss this issue of animal, animal experimentation. I feel like animal advocates, we are sometimes a bit out of our depth when we try and engage with the scientific arguments around um, animal experimentation as much as we can talk about them or the philosophy and the ethics behind it. But um, I do think it is an important space for those who do have the qualifications and the expertise to talk about. And Andrew Knight is one of these people because I guess in a way, if you win the scientific argument, the 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 ethical argument almost becomes redundant anyway because we won't do it for scientific reasons. So I think it is an important uh, dimension of this issue and I think Andrew Knight is a very uh, informed and very rational and very convincing speaker on this issue. So he's a professor of animal welfare and ethics, director of the Centre for Animal Welfare at the University of Winchester, um, a European and RCVS veterinary specialist in animal welfare science, ethics and law, um, an American veterinary specialist in animal welfare and a senior fellow of the UK Higher Education Academy. Um, he has over 65 academic publications as well as a series on YouTube videos about animal issues. So all that to say, he's a very smart person and has looked into this issue a lot. Um, so here is Andrew Knight talk about the, talking about the issue of animal experimentation. And this was recorded at the Animal Activist Forum. Now I've been asked to come and talk about animal research, um, which is obviously what I spent many years uh, looking into in some depth. Animal research clearly is a very controversial topic. There are um, uh, so-called experts on different sides of the debate that have strongly held uh, viewpoints and opinions. Uh, within the field of medical research, we recognise now that uh, the opinions of experts about a variety of matters are considered to be the least reliable form of evidence because we now know that even the opinions of experts can differ markedly on all sorts of things, anaesthesia in any sort of clinical field. So a bit more reliable than that, we consider to be published reports of, of individual cases, for example, how, how patients uh, respond to uh, particular treatments. As we go up the so-called hierarchy of evidence and we get more reliable forms of evidence, we start looking at cross-sectional studies. So in the field of medical research, that might be uh, a patient and how a disease progresses within or responds to a treatment at different points in time. 
Um, and then we start to add in controls, uh, other subjects that have not undergone the test treatment. We start to look at cohorts instead of just looking at one um, a subject. We, we're now looking at uh, substantial numbers often. Um, we start to use randomization in the allocation of um, subjects to control groups and to test groups, and we're now getting towards the top of the hierarchy of evidence. And at the very top, we um, systematically review the published literature looking for uh, reports of um, experiments, uh, each of which hopefully will use randomization or use cohorts and things like that. And when we find large numbers of these, we bring them all together and we pull uh, the data from those in a meta-analysis and then we draw conclusions. Uh, this is a lot more reliable than uh, the opinion of some so-called expert um, or the other forms of evidence in this hierarchy of evidence. Now, you can apply this, this research methodology to uh, questions about how effective is a certain drug in a patient or a whole variety of other clinical and research questions, including in uh, humanities, social sciences, things like that. Now, you can actually also uh, use systematic reviews to search for uh, studies that shed light on how useful uh, invasive animal research is in advancing human health care, in particular fields of health care. So I've, I've done this, this is what I've, I've spent a lot of time doing. I've, I've you know, searched the, the scientific literature to look, look for these sorts of reports. Uh, some years ago, I found um, 27 of, of these uh, systematic reviews out there that had uh, provided this sort of information. I don't have time to go through 27. Um, uh, rather foolishly trying to cover two separate topics in my one hour that I have here today. First one on animal research, second one on uh, vegetarian vegan diets for companion animals. So I will just focus on one or two. So there are a couple of these that are really interesting because they try to work out, well, what's the maximum uh, utility, usefulness, uh, clinical usefulness that might be achieved by animal models? And this is one of them. Um, in this particular one, they don't look at uh, your average published animal experiment. Instead, they try to look at the cream of the crop. They look at only those animal experiments which were successfully published in the world's top seven scientific journals. So they probably have a rejection rate of around about 99% or higher of all publications submitted to those journals because it's incredibly difficult to be published in the world's top seven. If you do achieve this, it's a major coup for your career as a researcher, help with promotions and so on. Uh, on top of that, most um, research that is, is published in scientific journals is cited a small number of times by subsequent publications. Much research is never cited again, demonstrating no on ongoing contribution to the advancement of knowledge, including much animal research. Those that are cited typically are cited you know, zero to 10 times. You're doing well if it's above 10 or definitely above 20. They said, right, our minimum is going to be 500 citations. So animal studies published in the top seven scientific journals, more than 500 citations each. They ought to be the most important animal experiments, uh, the most likely to be useful for advancing human healthcare. So these researchers in this systematic review found 76 of these published reports of animal research that had an average of about 900 citations each. So they ought to be incredibly important. But what they found when they looked at it was that the, the test drugs that have been tested in all these, these animal models went on to achieve the same results in humans only around about just over a third of the time, an opposite result in humans about 18% of the time, and 45% of the time they actually never went on to human um, trials at all, um, usually because concerns had arisen at the animal stage about safety or effectiveness of the agent. So overall, they found that only about 10% of the, the, the new test strokes tested in all these different animal uh, experiments 
uh, were subsequently approved for use in human patients. And you know, a critic might say, that, well, at least 10% of all of these animal experiments led to something useful for human patients. Maybe that's not so bad. But actually, we can't even assume that, unfortunately, because adverse reactions to approved drugs are still one of the leading causes of death, in, according to a 30-year review of causes of death in US hospitals. So there you go. So these, these, this study was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. The authors concluded that we need to be cautious about extrapolating results of even very highly cited animal research to the care of human patients. There are a few other systematic reviews trying to figure out what's the maximum usefulness that might be determined by animal experiments, showing similar results. When you look at all the systematic reviews, certainly the ones I found, I found uh, 20 that had uh, looked at the contributions of animal models in advancing human clinical outcomes, and seven that had looked at how useful they were in predicting toxicity in humans. So I found, found 27 in total. The overall results from all these 27, the authors concluded this, the animal models were substantially useful in advancing human clinical outcomes, all consistent with outcomes, and only two out of 20 studies, and one, one of those two, the conclusions were contentious because of the small sample size. Uh, all seven of the ones looking at toxicity demonstrated that the animal models were not reliable in predicting human toxicity, particularly the most important ones for human healthcare, which is carcinogenicity and teratogenicity, propensity to cause cancer and birth defects, respectively. So they're the, the top toxicities of public health concern. So why are the animal models are performing so poorly? Why, are they, why do the results from animal research translate so badly? Uh, to human beings. There's about five reasons really for this and I'm going to yarn through what, what they are. So the first is the, the differences between humans and animals and, this, and the second set is how we use the animals which changes things even further. So differences between human and animals, the basic differences, well they are different, they've got different biochemical systems, there's different absorption of foreign compounds be it drugs or toxins uh, into the body, distribution around the body into different compartments uh, metabolism, so the enzymes break them up and turn them into other compounds, and that can be different between the species. Now, different receptors on the surfaces of cells, which affect the uptake of those agents within the cells, differences that, that occur when they get inside the cells, and so on. So, this tends to result in changes, obviously, in the organ systems that are affected and reached by these foreign compounds, uh, the sorts of effects that occur when, when they get to those cells and organ systems can result in differences in toxicity, differences in the effectiveness of pharmaceuticals. With animal models, we tend to use um, young um, animals of a specific strain. Um, they tend to be often males only. Uh, they are often uh, arbitrarily chosen to be a certain number in a group rather than statistically working out how many you do need in a group to be able to uh, reliably predict to the rest of the population of mice. Instead, people often arbitrarily pick a number enough and pick a number which is too low. The result of all this is that results which are not even reliable to predict the whole population of mice, let alone any other species. We often have a lack of concurrent uh, illnesses that human patients actually have and also lifestyle risk factors. So animal models of stroke is an obvious example. Human stroke victims uh, are usually um, elderly and are usually have high blood pressure. Uh, the animal models to test all the stroke drugs um, are young and they don't have high blood pressure usually. Uh, unsurprisingly, there's been more than 500 agents that are, uh, seem to be effective in animal models of stroke and only two have ever proven effective in, in human beings. Uh, you know, this, is, this is one reason why. And then there are the... Uh, what, so this is the basic differences between animals and humans. And then on top of that, 
uh, it's how we actually use the animals in the labs as well. So we subject them to stressful environments and procedures. So let's look at laboratory housing. Most lab animals, are, you know, the most common ones are mice. Uh, they're in little, in little plastic cages and banks of these and great big batteries essentially. They're around about this big. Uh, they will have some um, a substrate on the, on the floor. They might have a bit of shredded uh, newspaper or something in a corner. Uh, maybe, if they're lucky, a little cardboard tube to run through. So it's a, basically a small, relatively barren, standardised environment in order to minimise uh, variation between all the different test groups, uh, in order to, with reasons of economy, it's cheaper, in order to maximise uh, access, ease of access to do things to the animals and for cage cleaning. So for all these reasons, they spend most of their lives in these pretty small, barren environments. And a review of 110 studies published in Laboratory Animals Journal uh, revealed that this causes effects to the animals, unsurprisingly. It affects the neuroanatomy, so they get uh, the cerebral cortex that decreases in thickness and weight. There are adverse effects on uh, cognitive processes, processing knowledge, on their memory. Uh, they have uh, uh, behavioural effects, they suffer behavioural stereotypies, these are, are behavioural patterns which are repetitive, apparently purposeless, uh, and believed to indicate stress, which is profound and chronic long term. And these behavioural stereotypies are believed to occur in uh, more than 50% of laboratory housed mice, but mice are nocturnal, so researchers, the, the awareness is less than the, the prevalence of the problem because they're nocturnal. Uh, other adverse effects would be increased aggression, you might see depression as well. So, um, unsurprisingly, um, any research results that depend upon looking at uh, behaviour, looking at neuroanatomical indices, looking at things in the blood that might be affected by stress, are probably going to be distorted, uh, and in fact are distorted, uh, by, being, yeah, by, by the environments in which these animals are kept. Now, what about enrichment? What about putting in that cardboard tube and a, maybe a second cardboard tube uh, or a bit of shredded newspaper? Well, it, it does seem to help, but it seems to only delay the onset of these effects by a short time, perhaps a couple of weeks, rather than prevent them. And if you think about the natural environment of a room, when naturally it roams in the urban area, for example, uh, trying to find food, avoid predators, compete with competitors, find mating opportunities, and there's a very uh, wide-ranging and varied environment, complex, they need to solve lots of problems, they're being stimulated a lot, their brains are being stimulated. Compare that to the, the small plastic enclosure with a couple of cardboard tubes and some shredded newspaper, you might be able to understand why uh, is this, this enrichment doesn't produce the, the hoped-for um, uh, benefits. So. Um, what about the procedures that we subject animals to? Now, we will understand that uh, invasive procedures cause stress. What about the non-invasive ones? There's less awareness of this. Uh, there was a number of you of 80 studies published in contemporary topics in lab animal science, another lab animal journal, uh, demonstrating that common lab species suffer marked stress and fear and possibly distress when subjected to common procedures as well, simply handling, uh, blood sampling, gavaging, Gavaging is the insertion of a tube into the throat for the administration of a compound orally in toxicity tests, which is quite common. Not very nice, but it is common. It's not normally thought of as invasive. Uh, so these also cause effects on animals. Animals, uh, basically, you see elevations in things like blood glucose, blood pressure, cardiac output, stress hormones in the blood. <coughs> um, animals do not readily habituate to these procedures over time either. 
So you, get, you end up getting variable stresses, um, but substantial stresses, they're not very predictable. They alter animals in, in variable ways. If they were predictable, they could be accounted for, but they're not. Um, you get uh, this caused by handling restraint, stressful routes of administration, so the blood pressure <coughs> and the gavaging, that sort of thing. And this affects things like stress hormones in the blood. Uh, when those go up, the immune system tends to become depressed. You can tend to get increased susceptibility to disease. You tend to get distortion of, of research results that depend upon uh, disease progression uh, by results. So that was just reason number two. Reason number three is that into toxicity studies, um, they tend to be very effective at correctly identifying things that are toxic in humans. They're very sensitive to human toxins. Uh, but how they achieve that is they use very high doses of compounds. So uh, all close to or at the maximum tolerated dose. This is a dose where if you were to increase above that level, acute adverse reactions, vomiting, collapse and death would mean that you couldn't actually dose. So they go close to the maximum or at the maximum tolerated dose. Um, and that's very effective in meaning that things that are toxic in humans probably will come up as being toxic in animals, so that, that works. The trouble is a large number of things which are not toxic in humans also come up as toxic in animals when you do this. And the reason that happens is because there are all sorts of mechanisms in animals that enable them to deal uh, with compounds that would not normally exert toxic effects at environmentally realistic doses. But when you bump up a dose a massive number of times, um, that tends to overwhelm the body's natural mechanisms and things which are not normally toxic then become toxic. So we're talking about things like shedding of the lining of the skin or the gut cells when they become a little bit damaged and only shed and replace and everything is fine. That can be overwhelmed. We're talking about enzymes in the body which are produced to break down things and render them non-toxic. They can be overwhelmed. We're talking about tissue repair mechanisms, DNA repair mechanisms, they can be overwhelmed as well at these very high doses. So the result is that you tend to, as I say, get, get um, a very poor specificity. It means that many things that are not toxic falsely come up as being toxic in these tests. On top of that, rodents have a, a much higher uh, metabolic uh, rate and decreased DNA repair rates. Uh, and on top of that, we tend to use ad libitum studies, which means the animals have free access to food. They can keep eating rodent chow whenever they want. This also bumps up the cell division rate. That predisposes to mutagenesis, which can be a precursor stage to carcinogenesis, i.e. cancer. Now, reason number four, methodological quality. When um, I was doing my review of all the other systematic reviews, I found that uh, at least 11 of these have demonstrated poor scientific quality, essentially, of uh, many of the animal experiments in those systematic reviews. There wasn't a single systematic review which had dem demonstrated good scientific quality of a majority of the experiments. So the common problems are these sorts of things. Lack of sample size calculations. I mentioned that before. You should statistically work out how many, you know, what's the minimum number of animals in the test group so that you can reliably predict results to the whole population. They don't. There's, there's very poor um, prevalence of people doing this properly. People tend to arbitrarily pick a number and the results then often are not, uh, cannot be uh, extrapolated to the wider population, let alone another species. <coughs> uh, lack of sufficient sample sizes, randomization and blinding. So this is randomly allocating subjects to different treatment groups and the control group. If you don't do that, researchers may have a subconscious sympathy uh, towards 
animals that they think look a little bit weaker and instead of putting them through a procedure they may subconsciously put them into a control group so nothing happens to them and what, what happens then is that a confounding factor has just been introduced to the experiment the results no longer depend upon the treatment they depend upon variable animal fitness as well so in order to eliminate that kind of effect um, you're supposed to use randomization to, to, uh, to put the animals into different groups blinding People who are uh, measuring uh, outcomes, and it's something that is easy to measure quantitative, you know, you can use a, a ruler or count something, fine. But if there's a subjective assessment going on, if somebody's looking at a microscope slide of a bit of brain tissue and trying to decide uh, how big is the area that, 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 that uh, was saved by this new test stroke, and how big is the area that, that got killed because you tied off an by an animal model of stroke, if they're using that subjective judgment, and they've got preconceived ideas about what they think the results are going to be or what they want them to be because they have an interest in getting a certain result. They're more likely to see something that's not there. Now we know uh, that this is real because we know from studies in other areas, particularly human emergency medicine, that studies that lack uh, randomization and blinding tend to report, uh, much more commonly uh, report an effect of a test drug and the effects are greater as well. So we know this isn't real, this is an effect of the lack of blinding, the lack of randomization, the artifacts coming into the experiment because of poor technique. Um, so unfortunately, the, you know, all these sorts of errors are massively common in animal research. Um, now, this has been, there's been a lot of studying of this, these sorts of phenomena recently and uh, Kilkenny and colleagues, after documenting the high rates of prevalence of all these sorts of errors in wide variety of animal research in all sorts of fields, funded by major universities and so on, published these Animal Research Reporting in Vivo Experiments Guidelines, the, the ARRIVE Guidelines, they're kind of famous. This is a set of guidelines that animal research is supposed to comply with. <coughs> animal research is supposed to include all sorts of details about the animals, about the housing and husbandry systems, sample size and how it was calculated, lining and randomization, all these other sorts of things to try to ensure that the studies are conducted according to good scientific standards and, and published uh, uh, to meet those standards. There have been other ones, they're not the only guidelines. Here's a similar list uh, published by some other authors talking about 74 items that need to be included in animal study design and conduct of the study. Now the ARRIVE guidelines are the best known. They've been uh, published or endorsed by over a thousand research journals <coughs> and major UK funding agencies and also part of the US guidelines. Despite all of this, follow-up studies have demonstrated that actual awareness and compliance with these guidelines remains poor in the animal research field. So this was a study, the, the next one came from uh, last year actually, in which all licensed animal research in Switzerland were surveyed. Uh, the ones that chose to respond were probably the ones most interested in research uh, quality and studies about that. Even so, um, Fully 56% of respondents did not know about the ARRIVE guidelines. Even among those whose latest paper was published in a journal that had endorsed the guidelines, still 51% had never heard of the guidelines. So the fact that a journal agrees with all these guidelines to try and ensure good quality of the research is no guarantee uh, that papers published in it will comply, but all the authors uh, publishing those papers have even heard of the guidelines. So it's just incredible. It's quite scandalous, to be honest. Now, let's say you unusually have animal studies that do actually comply with all aspects of these guidelines and are perfectly conducted. 
and you still have problem number five to deal with, to be honest. Problem number five is the amazing uh, issue of publication bias. It's really interesting. So how to explain it, probably in easy ways like this. Let's say we did a little animal experiment using mice uh, on a test drug, and we did it 20 different times, and 19 times out of 20, the results correctly demonstrate that there was no effect of the test drug. One time out of 20, because of random biological variation, it showed falsely that, that, you know, that group of 20 mice or whatever it might be, there was an effect. Now, journals will look at these results and go, you know, a study that shows an effect of an agent is actually more interesting, it's more exciting, it's more dramatic. So we're going to publish that one and we're not going to publish the others. Worst case scenario, the 19 studies sit in some researchers' file drawer and never get published. The one study that falsely demonstrates a result does. What happens then is that somebody later goes back to systematic review, systematically review all the published evidence about this test drug. They look at all the literature, they find that one study, they don't see the other 19 because they never got published. And then they draw false conclusions about uh, how effective this, this agent is in mice and then they decide to put it into human clinical trials and surprise, surprise, it doesn't work in humans. So, this is the publication bias problem. Uh, there's a, a bias towards publishing studies that show an effect, even though the ones that don't are just as important. Now, people have recently, this is a scandal by the way in science, People have recently been starting to study how prevalent is this problem in animal research and how much is it actually affecting the results. And you can do that using clever statistical techniques. Um, so here's a great example. This was published in 2010 in a scientific journal. They looked at 16 systematic reviews of 16 different test drugs in animal models of stroke involving basically 520 publications, 1,400 animal experiments involving 20,000 animals. So they, they ran some stats on these results and they detected publication bias in virtually all of, of these results. They, they estimated that all of them were overstating the effectiveness of these, these agents. Now, we should ideally see an overstatement of effectiveness of zero on everything. But actually, um, the overstatement, the average was about 8%. It was lift, lifting the average effect of all these 16 different agents from 24% up to, up to 32, actually. There was a, a one-third increase in, in how in what the effect size was considered to be of these 16 different agents. They estimated that 16% of all animal experiments were never published, and this involved 3,600 animals in this particular case, and it was distorting um, what people thought the effect was. Uh, they estimated that this effect, the publication bias, was probably widely prevalent across the life sciences. Uh, in, indeed, it's in other fields as well, geology and others, for example. However, the problem is that the results in animal um, studies are much more serious. It affects uh, patient treat, treatment decisions, drug development, <coughs> and of course all the animal, uh, animals they use and the scientific resources that go into this as well. So those really are the reasons why animal results translate so poorly to human beings. It's the differences in the animal models themselves, number one, and then all the rest is the problems with how we actually use the animals to, to basically distort uh, them as models for predicting humans. Um, and then finally, of course, the problem of publication bias. I was, you know, for people that want to know more about all this, I've got my book. Um, there's a, a chapter on um, animal research in Australia and New Zealand. I, I published in... Um, Animal Law in Australasia a few years ago, which goes into the Australian uh, numbers and animal uses in a bit more depth. 
I was asked to review all the latest evidence in this field, so there's a lot of exciting information coming out, just documenting how bad the research methodologies are in different areas of, of animal experimentation. I was asked to put all that into a new book chapter, which is coming out soon in, in a new book that's coming uh, out, which is new. <coughs> I try to include uh, a lot of this information as well on my website, animalexperiments.info, if, if uh, people are interested in, in downloading any of those you know, academic papers showing those sorts of uh, phenomena publication bias, scientific errors, things like that. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains. And the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. So I wanted to thanks, um, give a thanks to Kate, who was a previous Freedom of Species presenter, who um, yeah did that recording. So thanks to Kate. Um, and that same talk also covered the issue of vegan companion animals. I say as I'm being, uh, my, my feet have been licked by my vegan dog or one of my vegan dog, uh, Penny. And so we'll put a link, actually, we, we played that bit of the talk on a previous episode. Um, so we'll put a link into that into the notes as well. You can also find out more from Andrew Knight um, at Animal Experiment, sorry, AnimalExperiments.info for more on that issue specifically. Um, you can also search um, Andrew Knight on YouTube and um, and yeah, there's a link to that YouTube video and all of his publications, etc., um, at andrewknight.info. So we'll put all these links up at um, in the show notes for this episode as well as on um, social media. Um, and yeah, this was recorded at the 2017 Animal Activist Forum. So the best way to keep up with them is on Facebook. Um, they didn't have a forum this year, obviously, as lots of things sort of went, uh, you know, on a bit of a hiatus with uh, COVID. So yeah, search them on Facebook. We'll put a link up to that as well. Um, and yeah, that is all we have time for today. Um, we're going to finish up with the song um, Get Up by Goldfinger. It's quite got quite heavy themes around animal experimentation. It's obviously a relevant one to today, but it's also musically it's quite an upbeat song and a, and a call for action on this issue as well. So we're going to finish up with that one. Um, tune in to our show 1 till 2 every Sunday. Um, this is actually my final show for the year, but we've got one more show which Adam and Harley will be bringing you next week. So tune in for that next week, our last show for the year. Um, you can find all our shows at 3cr.org.au forward slash freedom of species, a bunch of podcast apps such as iTunes and Spotify. Um, you can email feedback, info at freedomofspecies.org. Um, connect with us on social media, search us on Facebook. We're at FOS Radio on, um, on Twitter. 
Um, I did want to ha- I'd have to mention the song does contain some swearing. Um, we're about to hear that in a moment. Um, and next up, you'd usually be hearing in Psychedelia. Uh, they are taking a break, a bit of an early break. So I hope they, hopefully they're having a good break if they happen to be listening in. So next up, I'm not quite sure what we'll be hearing. Probably some music. Um, Global Intifada has been played um, after our show recently. So, yes, yeah, stay tuned for some more 3CR content. And, yeah, that is all we have for today. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show, Lottie. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.